Hello, Curious Minds. Welcome to Mentorless Podcast, a show where I have in-depth conversation with visual storytellers about one particular project they completed. Together, we look at the creative and tactical steps they took from having an idea to releasing their finished project into the world. I'm your host, Nathalie Sejan. In this episode, I talked with Will and Sarah Magnes about The Manual, a medium-length sci-fi film they recently completed and is now going through the festival circuit. With Will and Sarah, I tackle an aspect of filmmaking in the 21st century that has not been covered yet, short film distribution and creating for the long game. The mistakes many indie filmmakers often make is to pour all their energy in making their film and afterwards, crickets. They have no more juice to push the film and this can lead to strong heartbreaks. In this episode, you will hear a different story. Will and Sarah came up with original and inspiring ways to make sure the manual will get its best shot out there. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did and I'll see you on the other side of this audio track. Will and Sarah, thank you very much for being with me on the Mentorless podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having Glad us. Glad to be here. So you contacted me a couple of months ago, I would say, to tell me about your latest project that is named The Manual. And one of its particularities is that it's a medium lens film. That's right. I think what I would like to start with, you are a couple and you've worked together on this project. Was it the first project you worked together on or did you do something before that? Well, no, this is not our first project. This is, um, I guess it's kind of like our fourth project together. We we met um, when I had moved back to Florida for a little while and we and had was interested in pursuing some filmmaking and a friend of mine introduced me to Will as a as a videographer and we started sort of pairing with each other um helping out each other on each other's film projects and that was um that was fantastic and we basically worked together for about a year and a half and then we decided that we were in love then we moved to Portland and um and it took a while for us to meet enough people to get a new project going but um this so this is our first project after having been in Portland for like seven years now okay okay and and you're both working in the film industry in a way but not the fiction part of it probably more the commercial part of it yeah we're doing a commercial production I work for a brand agency here and Sarah works for a digital agency. Yeah, so I'm not doing video as much anymore, but I was working in post-production for um, at a commercial and agency here in Portland. One of the first things I want to start with is, Will, when did you have the idea for the manual? Like, can you tell us how long ago did you have the idea for the manual and how did it present itself? Was it from the get-go a fiction, a feature, a short? You know, if you can explain us the, the process a little bit at the beginning. Yeah, of course. The way it started was I'm, I'm a huge fan of science fiction in general, and I knew I wanted to um, tell just a science fiction story, and so that was the ver the inkling of it. And I think I first first had the idea about four years ago, and it was initially going to be an animation about a child raised on a spaceship, and so that was the basic dynamic of of a child that's raised entirely by an artificial intelligence, and the idea. As, as I started working on it and making it something that was a bit more personal, it kept evolving as aspects of my own experiences and my life sort of seeped into it. It became a very different story and finally something that didn't seem right for animation anymore and um, could be better told as uh, with real people. How far in the process of developing it as an animation did you realize that 
did you did you have any experience in animation or did you just thought it was going to be an animation started writing the screenplay and while writing realized it was going to be a fiction or when did that pivot happen I do have some experience in animation I do I do uh, most of my most of my experience is in post production so the way I made it into the commercial industry was through editing I have a lot of experience editing and then I started directing as sort of a jack of all trades post production person i i know how to do animation and after effects and and basically i developed the the animation i had the script fully finished and had gone through probably four different rounds of revisions on it and i had all of the puppets created for the characters um and had done had animated out a couple of scenes and uh, let's see when did i guess Two years ago is when one of the revisions led to a completely different story, almost. It, it became unrecognizable, except for the one main character. Um, so I'd say that happened like two years ago. And it seems like when you, when Will was working on the animation part of it, like there wasn't much help I could provide him with that, because that's not my forte. And, you know, it was sort of moving really slowly, and you were sort of frustrated, it seemed like, because, you know, with big animation films, there's usually, like, hundreds of people working on them. And But the moment that you made the decision to make it a live action, it was like things really swung into gear, and we, we started moving forward really quickly. I'm, I'm quite intrigued, actually. I just want to stay a little bit longer with that phase, because two years is, is a long time. And I just want to get this right. For these two years, you were on your own. I'm guessing, Sarah, of course, you were following the process, but as you said, maybe just as a support system more than as an active uh, member of the crew, let's yeah. say. Yeah, that's right. So, Will, you were working full-time, and during nights and weekends, you were just developing the project on your own? Yeah, exactly. I mean, probably not as dedicated as I would want to be um, working on it, but whenever I had time, you know. And I, and I did get it to the point where I made a full animatic, where I had drawn out, you know, all the different shots I wanted, and it had... It flowed through um, a full like 20 minutes. And part of that was like during the time when we had when we lived in Portland and we didn't like have the community and the, we didn't have people in the film community that we could turn to for support. That's probably the biggest reason why we wanted to do an animation, because I felt like it was something I could do without anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely one of the great power of animation is that you can work on your own if you don't have people. So what I'm very curious about right now is that it was not working for you as an animation and you had an aha moment where you decided to make it a live action. Was it partially linked to the fact that you guys started meeting with people to make this movie happen or not at all? And the other question is that, is there something, like, do you remember specifically a reason that, like, a piece of the puzzle that came into play and made it clear, or is just an instinct that drove you to continue on the, you know, to take the story to the next genre, let's say. Right. Well, I think a big a big part of it was when I professionally moved from just being an editor to directing as well, I started to meet a lot more of the production community here in town. Specifically, the director of photography that I worked with, Kevin Fletcher, I was able to work with him on two or three different commercial projects. And we really got along very well and worked well together and had our whole situation figured out. And I told him about this project and he got very excited about it. And I would say that after that conversation with him is kind of what kicked it into more of a reality 
as opposed to mm-hmm. um, something that we weren't sure if it was going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. At that moment when you decided to make it, you know, regular fiction, let's say, yeah. you you had to rewrite everything. How did you go about it? Because I think at the beginning it was supposed to be short film, right? Yes. Well, I, it's the funny thing is that it's not, I wouldn't say there was like one point where I was like, okay, now it's time to rewrite it. It was like a lot of very small changes that eventually demanded a different setting. And so it was a very gradual change. Sarah, you you were producer on this on this on the manual, right? Yes, yes. When the project shifted and you entered in the project, what was your first move? Did you budget it? Can you walk us through the process of okay, now it's going to become a movie where we need to cast people, we need to scout locate, we need to make a budget, we need to have a crew. How did you go about that? I think this the the meeting with Kevin was sort of like the jumping off point where we really kind of got serious about it. And definitely the budget was the first thing that I thought about and started creating and working with our other producer, Stacy Lortz, who um, helped me a lot because I hadn't done a lot of like production. I've, my experience was also most in post-production. So yeah, we started working on a budget and it really was like thinking about whether um, it was a three-day shoot or a four-day shoot and if we could get everything into three days and then it became like actually we can't afford three days we need to make it work in two days <laughs> so so budgeting was the first thing that happened and then um we started doing auditions and actually will helped a lot with that part and uh we really just went online and started finding people in town that were responded to our audition call and the rate that we paid which was obviously very lousy but those were the first two things and then i think scouting for the location was a was a huge piece of the puzzle that started to make it all um come together and gel But, you know, once we saw the reality of the the budget, it turned into a two-day shoot with, like, a third day of a skeleton crew with, like, only four people um, involved on that day, which was the day where we captured most of the the scenery where you are, like, where you really feel that you're in this, like, post-apocalyptic world and not so much inside the forest. So then it was like, how are we going to actually get this money? And so we started looking at um, crowdfunding, which... I've never been a fan of that. Like before this process, I would see friends trying to raise money online and just like, oh, another person asking me for money. But now that we ha- we've gone through this process and had to do that, um, I definitely look at that with a totally different perspective and want to to as many people as possible just to have good karma for the next time. Because it's so, it's so hard to raise a decent budget. And we, I mean, we didn't spend a ton of money, but we raised about half of our budget. And then Will and I, over the course of time, just accrued debt to pay for the rest of the film, basically. But uh, <laughs> basically, raising the money was was the next piece of the puzzle. So let me ask you this. When you first made a theoretical budget, how much did you thought you needed to complete this, this short? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I think at first when I put the, the budget together myself, it was like we wanted to pay everyone like their full rates. And that was just crazy. I don't even know why we even thought that that would be possible. But it was like something like 60,000, maybe more. And then when I started working with Stacy, I think we got it down to like 30 something. And then when we decided to move it to a two day shoot with like that skeleton crew third day, I think we got it down to about 
15, but we did end up spending a little more than that in the end. I love the fact that you were planning to do a two days short film and really looked at it as we're going to pay everybody, which is very rare actually. Even for short films that cost 15 or 20,000 dollars, most of the time the crew, maybe the DP, but most of the time the crew is not paid. Did you ever consider not paying people? Well, I think, I mean, just to clarify, at least 50% of the people volunteered their time once they found out we were doing this. So we didn't, in fact, we went into it with the intention of trying to pay everyone, but there were a lot of our friends that volunteered their time, the people we had less good relationships with, or, you know, we just couldn't ask that kind of favor. We ended up paying them like reduced rates. So yeah, but we exactly. wanted to, the, the point is that we really wanted to pay full rates to everybody at first until we saw the budget <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> it is, it does cost a lot of money still to make films. I think that that part of the reason that we initially felt like it was important is because the fact that our community that we're in is a, it's the commercial production community. So people are used to, it's like their job, you know. Which is a little bit ironic if you think about it, because you might think that they might be more inc inclined to use their skills for, uh, you know, passion projects. But I understand what you're, where you're coming from. Yeah, for sure. Do, wait, wait, do you mean good versus evil? Is that what you're trying to <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I mean, I have friends who, who work in the commercial world and uh, I, mean, I don't know, it's another debate, I guess. But uh... It's so true. I mean, I have to say that a lot of these people, I feel like we're very excited to work on this project because typically what they're doing all day long is, you know, selling advertising, which I think everyone, a lot of people in Portland that we have found are, they love filmmaking um, and they love that work, but there's just not a lot of paying gigs that are not that are outside of the advertising realm. So everyone sort of has moved into that place so they can support their families because this is a big family town. Like people come here to like have children and raise their children, but they all want to do filmmaking. So I think that's why we got a lot of people um, donating their time. You know, it's funny because, uh, so for the little anecdote for anyone who is listening, uh, Will and Sarah contacted me a couple of months ago and they are the reason why I started this whole mentorless uh, series of interviews with filmmakers even though you ended up not being the first one I interviewed. And one of the other filmmakers I interviewed is also from Portland, mind you. And he's um, he made a feature film and he's still living there. I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys will get in touch afterwards. It's uh, out. What were the odds, like, out of the handful of people I'm interviewing in the whole wild world, two of you are in the same town or three of you are in the same town. So... Wow. It is funny. I guess Portland has more to reveal still. So I want to go a little bit further about your crowdfunding campaign. You picked Indiegogo, which I thought was a smart move. The, the usual tendency is to go with Kickstarter, but in your situation, it made total sense since you didn't hit your goal. If you were on Kickstarter, you would have lost everything. So can you tell us a little bit about how long did you prepare for the campaign and What did you learn about it? Would you do anything differently? I know uh, crowdfunding campaigns are very hard. And as you said, Sarah, there is a big fatigue around the fact that now it's just like the normal thing to do. You're doing a movie, you ask people for money. And it's not like five years ago when it was still a little bit uh, exotic, I guess. What do we do to prepare? Well, I mean, obviously you do the... We do, you do all your research on what are the, the best practices to doing a crowdfunding campaign and doing a, uh, a good kind of pitch video is very important. I, I put together this little pitch deck that was like a three-page PDF 
that had sort of mood imagery and information on the story and what my plan was with it that I was using to recruit uh, crew members. So I would have coffee with someone and kind of go through and pitch the project to them to try and get them excited about it. And I think what we wanted to do with the, the Indiegogo video was to uh, recapture that feeling of just a personal conversation with someone to get them excited about the project. How many of you were, uh, it was just the two of you who dealt with the uh, Kickstarter? Uh, the, the, see, I, I even say Kickstarter now with, <laughs> the, <laughs> with the crowdfunding campaign. It was yeah. really Will who did all of that work. I'll have to be honest here. Yeah, and we, <laughs> we had a lot of support. There's a, uh, there's a music house in Portland called Marmoset. And they donated some music for our Indiegogo pitch video, which was super nice of them. Yeah, and they promoted our campaign on their blog. And uh, we had a lot of friends who promoted the campaign. But we, I just feel like we don't have a lot of friends with a lot of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the fact that we got 9,000 or t nine and a half, nine, that was, that was uh, I just felt super excited about that. So um, I was impressed that our friends were able to give us that much. Because you, the the movie is not released yet, so I'm guessing you you still have you're still in touch with the people who backed your project, and you still have to send a reward. How do you feel about the amount of time it's taking? Is it something that is on your mind, or I'm just wondering about once you do a crowdfunding campaign, there is a bit of um, responsibility, I guess, that you need to handle on top of making your project. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that's awesome about it is that. If you do do a crowdfunding campaign, you've then sort of forced yourself to be accountable to people on your project, to people who aren't yourself. At that point, it's like you've got to make it, you know, which I thought was awesome. That's a good point. But yeah, I mean, we have delivered some of the some of the perks because some of the perks could be delivered before the thing was finished. And there's still more to go. And it's definitely on our mind. And we've got the list. And yeah, it's, it's going to happen. It's interesting because when you like... When you're doing the crowdfunding campaign, you're very excited about the project. And then when you have to deliver the perks, right, you're, you've gone through it and you're a little weary and you're like, it's not, it's not like the, it's not the thing that is on top of mind to, um, to finishing the film at that point. I remember we were like having to remind each other, like, oh, we have to send people like a certain amount of people, a certain level of donation we offered to see the first rough cut or something or, yeah. and, and, and comment on it. And at that point, we were like, are we ready to like take feedback? <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, is this, will anybody else even understand this without any of the like CGI in it or yeah. without any audio? It was kind of a scary idea to send that out. But we did and people were very um, kind. And then we, and then Will put something into um, a perk. He said that we would cook people, you know, have them over for dinner and cook them a <laughs> meal. <laughs> and I was like, I remember recently being like, why did you promise people that? Yeah. But then, you know, but then we were making arrangements with people to do that. And it just felt so awesome. Like, I'm so glad that we're going to have people over for dinner and talk about our film in the future and, and art and life. And um, it actually was a brilliant idea. But there are times where there was a time when I was like, that was the worst idea because I'm <laughs> going to be cooking this meal. <laughs> yeah, that's a, but that's a very good out-of-the-box idea. I like it. Is there anything you would do retrospectively differently about the campaign, either from the perks, for instance, or I don't know how you reached out to people or anything you, you think if you were to do another one, something you would change? Well, I have some friends who have gone onto this other website called Seed and Spark, 
I haven't done a lot of research on it yet, but it seems like it has worked out really well for them. And there's seems to be a bit more um, aimed at independent filmmaking. So I guess what I would do differently is research that more and see if it might be a better fit. Yes, Hidden Spark is a good platform, actually. I'm happy you're mentioning it because I don't hear many people mentioning it, even though I feel it's a, it's a platform solely dedicated to filmmaking and to filmmakers. They are trying to build this very healthy network, I guess, of filmmakers. But I have to admit that I don't hear, I don't hear about it as often as I wish I would. So I'm happy you're mentioning it. What I'm wondering right now is that how much time happened between the moment you, you talked with your DP and you decided, okay, let's make it a short film, to the moment you ran the crowdfunding campaign, to the moment you shot the actual film. Was it over a year? I think it was about nine months total. Like you talked to Kevin in like early 2016, like around spring, yeah. and then we did the crowdfunding campaign like in um, the summertime. And then we shot October 8th of last year. So it's been just a little over a year since we shot. It took, we were um, in post-production for a while since it was really just Will working on it in post-production. Yeah. Um, and then our, our composer. And you, and you have a big VFX sequence. I mean, I think we should maybe add that it's not your family dinner short, short film. <laughs> it's like you, you post-production will take some time for sure. So what I'm wondering is that, you know, you're making this short film. I'm guessing you're developing a strategy about distribution, probably sending it to film festivals. I mean, I would like to hear about that. Basically, you just finished the film. I, I guess you're going to release it in a few months or something like that. Initially, our idea was to just send it to festivals and do a festival run and then release it online. And so there's this thing that um, for a short film, it's, it's a half an hour long film, so it's a medium length film. But um, there was something that I wasn't aware of is that festivals don't necessarily like to program. Like you're more likely to get into a festival with a 10 minute film than with a half an hour film, just because they have so many slots to fill. And yeah, it's just easier to, easier to fit something like that in. And I, I wasn't aware of that. And I don't think that if I was aware of it, it would have changed anything because I think the most important thing is obviously to tell, have the film be the right length to tell the story that you want to tell. And we weren't necessarily making this film just to go to festivals. We we're making this film to tell a story to people. When we found out about that, that was like, okay, so do we do festivals? And we've actually gotten into two festivals already and we're, you know, we're doing the festival run. We're still waiting to hear back on a lot of them. But as far, as far as other uh, filmmakers I've spoken to, it seems like we're being accepted at a little better than sort of the average festival acceptance rate, which is good to hear because yeah. I think it speaks to the quality of the film. But I think we decided like to release the film online sooner because we realized that like, you know, why wait? Um, you know, I, people, I think, wait because of their like premiere or some, it might hurt their chances of getting into a festival because they're online or anyway, it just felt like, you know, we don't really know why these people choose you or don't choose you. Like if the, if the, if the length of the film is already working against us, then like, why are we waiting anyway? We want to share the story. We didn't make the story to just like, um, make it hard to see or, 
we didn't make this story so that no one could see it. And so why not just release it? And we've, that's why we've kind of shifted our strategy. So when you, when you realize that uh, the length of the movie might play against it, which is true, uh, <laughs> I mean, which is true, you don't need me to confirm it, but that's something that I've definitely heard people say many, many times, and which makes sense as well, if you think about it. Did you consider shortening it? I did consider it. I actually tried to. And it didn't, it just didn't work. It was, it's the wrong length for, you know, you the took story. like five minutes out, didn't you? Or three minutes? Well, I, tr I tried to get it down to 20 minutes and, you know, I mean, I'm an editor, so that's, that's what I do, but it just didn't work. And I can tell when a story works or doesn't work. And to me, the film, it, part of what takes so long is that we're really trying to establish that this is like a big, vast, empty world that um, James is living in. And it's important that you see these shots of like, various type topographies and places that he's going to be searching. And, and so that's kind of what takes time. There's maybe not a lot of dialogue in that, those parts, but I feel like they're visually interesting and you sort of need that to get, to grasp the, 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 the loneliness, the isolation of him being sort of alone in that world with this machine character. And I just don't feel like we could cut more of that out. I just have a, a question. I, It was my understanding, but maybe I misunderstood when you were on the video of the crowdfunding campaign that it was not meant to be a medium-length uh, film. Did you always know it was going to be 30 minutes, or did it expand as you went into post-production? It definitely expanded, um, and I can tell you how that happened. One thing that I did when I was preparing the actors for their roles was I, I wrote a 15-page long Um, sort of sacred text, which is which was supposed to be a piece of the content of the actual manual device to familiarize them with what that religion might have in it and some of the stories that might run through and things like that. And when we did the first cut of the film, it felt like there was a huge part of it that was missing. And we ended up putting in voiceover from the actual manual sacred text that was initially only for the actor's benefit, but it rounded out the story and made, made it pretty unique, I think. Hmm, interesting. So this was a post-production twist, I guess. It was a post-production story change, basically. It's almost crazy to me that we felt like we could get away with not having more of that yeah. text in there at this point. But anyway, hindsight is 2020, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you spend a good deal of time on your own wheel doing the post-production? Is that you, you did everything in post-production? Is that correct? Mostly, yeah. I had my friend Philip McGuigan helped me set the project up. He kind of did some assistant editing on it for me. And then I did have a day of help from another friend, Andrew Barrick, who did some rotoscoping on one shot. So we had a costume malfunction in one scene where the neck of the robot had popped out, but it was it was her best performance. And it was beyond my skill level to composite the neck back into the costume. And so we ended up hiring a professional compositor to, to do that, that aspect of that scene for yeah. us. His name was Dan Short, and he did a great job. But other than that, yeah, I did it all myself nights and weekends at, when I wasn't working. I've seen that you got some coverage. You, you made a trailer, I think that was covered on Slash, and... 
you got an interview also while you were doing the Indiegogo campaign or afterward. I don't quite remember. Did it happen out of luck? You just sent a couple of emails or did you develop a strategy to raise awareness? And you reached out to me, for instance. So I'm guessing you, you were kind of mindful about how to make people aware about your work? Yeah, I've been trying to figure out interesting ways of sort of promoting this film. The Slash film coverage was actually took us by surprise that we didn't reach out to them. They just covered it, which was pretty cool. Did you know, did you know how they found you? Yeah, I think that a friend of ours is a regular contributor to that site and wrote to the guy who, who does it and was like, hey, check this out. But we didn't know that until afterwards, right? Yeah, we didn't we didn't know that so he that had was done really that. Nice of him. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. But it's really like it just feels like you have to, you know, in this day and age with the, everything being on the internet, I think that there is this like perception that you're going to put something online and it might like blow up and and suddenly go viral, but that's not really how it happens. You have to really be proactive and have agency over your plan and just be kind of brainstorming ideas on how to you know, target people who might be interested in, in the type of story that you're telling and, you know, reach out to them because they, you know, the internet is a, a very big place. <laughs> it is, it is, which is, which is why I'm interested because personally, I feel that where a lot of people and probably myself included, you know, leaves the game and that's where a lot of projects die is when it comes to distribution, whether for film festivals or for, you know, press if we can talk about press when it comes to online. But I, I am interested in hearing how did you brainstorm about it? And, you know, even even if you have a budget for film festivals, because that costs some money and it takes a lot of time as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that we've been, because we dedicated so much time and so much of our own money into this project, even though it's almost like playing the lottery with some of these festivals like Sundance or um, South by Southwest or whatever, it, you just feel like you have to submit to those festivals just because you've already gone through so much, you just have to do it. But then other than that, we have had a strategy of targeting festivals that had a medium length category or that were focused on science fiction or post-apocalyptic uh, screening, things like that. Or horror. Or horror. Yeah, it's funny because our um, it seems like we are sort of fitting into a weird horror. I think it's called neo-horror. It's somehow fitting into that in some places. Yeah, but at first, like with the festivals, we just literally our strategy was to just go online and find as many festivals as we thought were decent festivals <laughs> based yeah. on their website, based on, you know, reviews. So it wasn't really a, a great strategy. But when we started finding out about the medium length issue and, and the difficulties with that, we started being a little more targeted and and decided that we couldn't just send it to every like amazing festival we found online. We have invested a lot in the festival piece of this, but we just decided it was worth it because we've invested so much that we have to kind of keep going. Follow through. Yeah. Did you only apply to American film festivals or did you also apply to international film festivals? We've definitely applied to international festivals as well. I don't think country really mattered to us. We had um, a festival called the Leuven, Leuven Film Festival, which is in um, Belgium. They reached out to us after seeing the trailer and gave us a waiver. So that was fun to be able to submit to them. Did you send them the trailer or did they see the trailer and reached out saying you should you should apply to the film festival? Our trailer got featured on Film Shortage, which is like a film website. 
And I think that we got a lot of views from that. And I think that's how that festival director found found it. And you said you, you got selected already into two film festivals. I'm not sure you can say which one yet, but are those festivals you're planning to attend? Like, do you have budget and time for this type of event? Well, we, it actually already played at the Rome International Film Festival in Rome, Georgia. And then it's playing in two weeks at, in Tampa Bay, at the Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival. And that's, that's our hometown. So I'm actually going to go there and make it into a family trip, see my parents and stuff. So I will be attending that. So we're justifying that cost because it's sort of like, you know, there's other reasons to go. And yeah. then we had we got a, a nominated for some awards, so it seems worth it. But it's definitely a really agonizing decision when you get in because the um, the Rome Georgia Film Festival is like right outside of Atlanta. It's just it was a really beautiful film festival, and they um, it just seemed really like nicely curated, and it's been going on for a while, and we really wanted to do that, but um, it, financially it's really hard. So. We have a three-year-old and, you know, when you have a child, it all changes um, what you can spend your money on and what you can't. So, yeah. so it's hard. I don't know if like after this, if we would be able to, unless it was like a, a, you know, a really prestigious festival, if we would spend the money. Do you know how many festivals you applied to? I think we applied to about 60. That many? Wow. And we're still waiting to hear back on like 40 45 of those. Oh, yeah. So there's still plenty of time. Anything can happen, basically. But you're still... So let me get that right. You applied. You're waiting for 45, let's say, film festival answers. I know some of them must require that you don't put the film online, no? Not very many. Ah, okay. A lot of them will have requirements that it hasn't shown in their town, mm -hmm. you know, theatrically. But there's not there's not a lot of festivals that have premiere requirements. So they might have them for feature films, but not necessarily short films. Yeah, some of these like rules that everyone sort of still lives by, like you know, um, once you know, premiere requirements and those sorts of things are not necessarily as Um, prevalent as we think anymore with um, at least when the film festivals that we've looked into when we release our film online we are planning to charge a small fee for it like a dollar or two so that it's not completely accessible which we are thinking might help with festivals just thinking like you know not having a reason to play it because it's you know all over the internet or something does that make sense i don't know if i said that it does it does it does actually i, I want to ask you more about that but before that just one last thing about the festival what how did you make your research and application is there any programs website you use yeah the only time we used without a box is when we absolutely had to because it is such a bad program. It is such <laughs> a bad website. So, but there's some festivals that only allow you to submit through that, but it's not a lot. Mostly I used Film Freeway, which has much better searching tools. You know, people can write review, filmmakers can write, write reviews on the festivals. It's designed much better. It's just overall a much better experience and easier to keep track of things and Highly recommended by me. Okay, that's good because uh, I, I never use them. But uh, without a box, is not uh, yeah, it's not it's not great. So now I'm interested in talking about the online distribution strategy. And since you mentioned the possibility of charging, tell me a little bit more about what you have in mind. Maybe it will change, but what you have in mind, or maybe it won't change, and when it's going to happen. Yeah, and I think we haven't really nailed down our release date yet just because we've started getting more traction with the 
festival circuit, and so I think we want to see where this leads before we release. So that's so that's a little fluid, but but our plan right now is once we are done with um, everything we want to do with festivals, to go and release it on Vimeo so that people can rent it for like a dollar or uh, buy it for two dollars or more like pricing it like a like a television show, which is more in line with I think how the how long it is and the journey that you that you go through in terms of the story. And and the point of that is not necessarily to make money because I don't think that I don't think there's any way we're going to recoup what we've spent on it. I think it's for both of us, it's more about perceived value of the product. If you just throw something up on YouTube, people are less likely to give it the amount of time that I think that our story needs, like this half an hour story. I want people to have the experience, not sit at their at their you know work desk watching a YouTube video. I don't think that that's the right experience for the story. And so that is the thinking behind why we're going to put up this, have this little paywall in front of our story. So if you say paywall, you say much more work for you to raise awareness. Is that something like, are you developing a strategy to make people aware of the short film? I mean, besides talking to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is part of the strategy. We've been, um, obviously festivals are a part of that strategy too. We put together a whole series of things. Part of, so part of the first, probably the most important part is to identify who our core audience is. And we identify that. And then you have to figure out where do those people go um, online because we're mainly just doing this online and just finding how do you get the word out in those areas. And so part of that is advanced reviews. We've already had, I think three different reviewers that we've sent screeners to and they've, they've written out reviews and doing interviews on different podcasts that are related to the genres and then um, our social media, getting campaign. our, yeah, getting our social media under control where we've actually um, hired a guy yeah, who's, who's going to start, Uh, kicking our social media into yes. high gear. Yeah, we uh, we met this guy Brian, who is going to start helping us. Um, he's got a whole plan in place for our social media. So obviously, that's a huge part of it. I don't know. Um, maybe we haven't mentioned it till now because it seems so obvious. But you know, since people will be listening who might be taking advice from this, like the more robust your social media plan, the better. And I would say that we've probably started late in that process like we you know we've been kind of personally posting on social media but um he's going to help us really like strategically with the rhythm of our posts the type of posts we do and just making sure that the cadence feels right like we're posting the right mix of like behind the scenes versus stills versus um little clips that we were planning to do of the manual the text versus like you know, interviews like this or like any kind of press that we get. So having someone that is really like savvy with social media, um, I guess we all feel like we're savvy, but there are people out there. They're typically younger. <laughs> they really know social media in a way that just better than me. So that's a very good point. And it's very interesting because it's the first time I'm hearing about it. Usually I hear about this type of strategy, you know, of having someone dealing with this type of stuff, typically during crowdfunding campaigns. And I love the fact that you guys are actually going to leverage this tool for the distribution, which uh, I find great. If you know already, I would love to know when you mean socials, which platform have you selected? Are you going for a page, Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, or, you know, less? And also, is it for the manual? 
or is it for Will? Is it just for the project of this movie particularly or is it more for a career type of, uh, you know, long game type of social media? That's a great question. Yeah, I think it's just for this film. We have a Facebook page, Instagram are probably the two main ones and then we're also setting up Twitter. But I think we... You know, obviously, like, we're, we want to promote this film. And at this point, like, we don't necessarily have, like, um, dreams and goals that this film is going to make us money. But what this film can do is help us with people who might be interested in donating to our next project. And I think that's really the long game that I'm thinking of is, like, the next project, like, I really do want to pay people, maybe not their full rates, but at least, like, I want everyone to be paid. Like, you know, like we said, at least 50% donated their time. I really want to, you know, have a decent budget, work with our friends again. And this sort of gives us, hopefully this, this is like basically credential. This film is like our credentials. Like, can you put something together that is beautiful and tells a compelling story? And can you hire the right people and find the right locations? And can you promote it? And are you going to follow through and all those things? And sort of this film is basically the evidence of that, right? So um, that's the long game, in my opinion, is like, it sort of does promote us as filmmakers. So I hope, I hope that that's what we achieve from all of this work. Yeah, I think that as a filmmaker, you, every project is leading to the next, you know? I mean, I definitely think that the main outcome of a particular project should be to be able to do the next project and anything else is bonus, basically. Okay, a couple of more questions about the social media distribution, long game type of uh, strategy. Do you have a website? Are you planning to have a website? We have a website up right now. It is themanualfilm.com. So this is the place where people can go to find out whenever the movie will be out or where it's playing, if it got into festival or to find your socials, right? That's right. Yeah, we have the trailer up there, all the screenings. There's also people can see all the press we've gotten so far. It's like a newsletter sign up. Yeah, you can sign you can sign up to be notified. You put your city in and then if it plays near you, we will send out an email. And for the social media, I'm just intrigued and I don't know if you have the answer already, but when are you starting to kick off the socials and how long what's the plan? Like how long do you decide for a short film? That you're, or for a feature film, it would be the same question, I guess. How long do you plan on sustaining those accounts on a very regular basis? So um, the guy that is going to be running our social media, Brian Namus, what he did was he asked us to give him all of the content that he would have to work with. And based off of that, he's developing, he's going to decide like when to start it. Because I think the point is that you want to be posting enough to keep it consistent and keep people interested. Yeah. And so you figure out how much you have to post and then when do you want to do the release? Like what do you want the post to lead up to? Mm -hmm. And then you want to sustain a little bit after that. Right. So he's, he's still working on that. So I, I can't tell you exactly how long it is, but I know that it's based on what you have to work with. The amount of content we've given him, yeah. I guess it also depends on when you're going to, because this is all about the online launch, right? So if you're going to launch it in four months, you have four more months to, or three more months, let's say, to build, to create content to give him or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Since we're talking about this, I wanted to mention that something that I think we made a mistake on with this film is we didn't have an on-set photographer taking behind the scenes stills and all of that. And that is something that can help help you very much with the social media. Or will help. I don't know if it's can, it's 
definitely will help you because people, we've gotten so much more reaction on social media to behind the scenes shots. Like people are just so much more interested and everybody wants to know or see like what it takes to, to make a story. So that's really huge. And even if you just have a a PA assigned to doing that, like someone that's already helping with other stuff, but it's, it's top of mind for them to be taking behind the scenes photos. I mean, we were able to pool a lot of photos because people were taking photos, but um, we probably would have gotten more and better shots had someone been thinking about that. That's also a very good point. And I actually think that in an ideal world, we would always have almost a double budget, one for the actual film and another one for a making of crew. And I think it would be so much easier to even recoup because somehow it's easier to sell and make money out of making of than the actual project that might work or might not work. And some people might like it and some people might not like it, but everybody wants to know how you make it. So since we are at that point, and it's it's excellent because that's pretty much one of the closing questions that I have for you guys. It's like if you were doing the manual tomorrow, starting from the moment you decide to make it a short film, uh, what are the things you would do differently besides having a set photographer? Hmm. You want me to take this one? <laughs> um, Let me think on it while Sarah's talking. You know, every time you make you do a project, there's things you would do differently. I think. Go ahead. So I think the most obvious thing is that I wish we'd had more money for every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Like um, specifically, I wish that we had been able to spend a little bit. I mean, it. it so here's here's one thing that happened was our um, the crew that designed the and built the robot costume they basically did not have enough money to work with and because of that I didn't see the final finished version like fully final finished version until the day of shooting I had been working with them iteratively and along the whole way but I but I didn't I didn't see the final thing I was prepared to have a fully CGI robot if it came if it showed up and it wasn't it wasn't going to cut it thankfully they did an amazing job they were I think they were up for 17 hours the night before the shoot getting putting the finishing touches on this thing and it and it was an amazing costume but it could have it could have gone very wrong and yeah so, and that was due to them not having enough money to put the time into it that they should have. And I think that we, there's just aspects of the film that could have gone wrong if it could have gone wrong easily because there wasn't enough money. I mean, we were kind of um, not spending money whenever we could because of, we're, I mean, it was an ambitious, it's an ambitious project. And so that's part of it. So, obvi- I mean, the big obvious thing is like, oh, I wish we had more money. I think, you know, this might be seem silly, but people always say when you're not paying people, you need to feed them well. And that is so true. And we did feed people really well. But I do think if you can try to get someone to just be dedicated to food, it goes a long, long way. And crew really appreciates it. I mean, our second day of shooting, it rained the entire day. It was, <laughs> it was like awesome. And terrible at the same time because we've got we got these like very dramatic shots that I think if the rain hadn't been you know pouring down on us the way that it was they wouldn't have felt so intense and like well I wanted to get I wanted to get a rain truck but we couldn't afford it and then it ended up <laughs> <laughs> nature took care of you I was just like people were desperate to get out of the rain it was really cold and really rainy and if 
you know, I, I think just having contingencies to make people more comfortable. Like at the last minute I was buying umbrellas and things, but like people were pretty cold and miserable that day. We did end up like cutting early and not getting every shot because Will had decided in his mind that he didn't need certain shots we had planned for. But I think like when you just making sure that you have like tents and you have like places for people to go and be warm when things like that happen. Um, I, this is an obvious thing. And I think in the commercial production world, but they have big budgets. And when you're working in short films, like I think a lot of um, skimping happens around like people's comfort, your crew and your, um, and your cast comfort. And you just can't do that because when people become demotivated and you know, when, when the morale goes down, it really shifts the energy. It shifts everyone's energy. And we did take care of people enough that I think everybody were pretty, were happy, but everybody was definitely sighed a huge sigh of relief when we Instead of shooting till 10 p.m., we shot until like 7. Everyone was very happy because it was already so dark. But then the sun went down and it was like, you know, it felt like death out there. <laughs> I love once again that you're raising this point because those are the little details that are going to kill a set. And especially when people are not paid. Um, you know, when it's your job and you're paid for it, you shut up and you just do it. But when you're not doing it because of the money and you're doing it because of passion or because you believe in, in it or because you you're just you know they're your friends but then it's there also their day off and they're tired and and i do think that stomach is a very strategic place to hit right <laughs> if you want people i remember a filmmaker saying you know never budget for just pizza and chips and coke that's you know the cliche saying oh we'll just buy pizza and people will be happy no they won't you need to feed them very well and that's that's actually something people who don't have budget should take out of this episode i feel i just have one uh, last question with you guys we talked about that this project is basically hopefully the first step for the next project. And so my question is, you've been working on this for the last four years, aside from having a kid and having full-time jobs, did you have time or are you already working on a new project? And if so, what is it? We're both trying to develop our own feature scripts. And then we're going to swap them and edit, and edit each other's and kind of figure out what our next project is after that. But I'm, I'm about halfway through my first draft. And it's going to be similar in tone, I think, to this short film. But yeah, I think we want to do a feature next. Sarah, you're also writing a feature? I would say that I am outlining my feature at this point. <laughs> I'm much slower than Will is. But yes, I've, I've, I'm starting to craft a story. And um, Will's gotten a lot further than I am because he's, I don't know, he's a machine that despite having a full-time job and a child is able to stay up like till three in the morning working. And I don't have that kind of stamina, but but yeah, the intention is that we'll be done writing in a couple months and then we'll be able to swap and um, decide which one is the best one for our, ne our next project. But yeah, cool. So basically you're going for feature right now. That's pretty, I love it. It's very ambitious. It's very good. I hope I will still be around to hear about how this one is going. I want to thank you very much for your time and your generosity. It was a real pleasure to talking with you too. Thank, thank you, you, Natalie. This was such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys. It was my pleasure. This episode was produced and edited by me, Nathalie Sejean. The music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. You can discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash soulofbear. You can find all the previous episodes on mentorless.com slash podcast, on iTunes, 
on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and everywhere else. It's very important for me to read your comments, so don't hesitate to share them on iTunes, possibly with a lot of stars, or to tag me on Instagram and Twitter. I am at mentorless. I cannot wait to read you. If you have a story about a creative project that taught you a lot and you'd like to share, you can submit it. Go to mentorless.com slash podcast. At the end of the page, there is a form you can fill up to submit your story. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. I'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Mm -hmm.